Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Shrett. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey guys, welcome back to Choices Not Chances and we have a good one for you today. Our guest today is Chase McGorty Hunter and... He's going to join us virtually. I had him out at the house uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I wasn't quite done with the studio, and I had some traveling to do, um, and so I wasn't able to get him in, but we have him virtually today, and we had a great conversation last week. Um, it's actually you know, kind of funny. We, we met with um, like Instagram profiles. I was following him. He was following me, uh, or maybe not. I'm not sure, but I was following him, and... Um, I got up with Damian O'Connell with uh, Warfighter Society a while ago. We've been chatting back and forth and and um, and talking and and I just kept seeing your handle on everything that I was looking at. And then I you know got to looking at your page and it's everything that I want to be looking at, right? Because um, I talked to you know talking with the, the Marines now and running the show and uh, running this show and and uh, trying to get good information out to out to the active guys you know as as good of information as i can find and and so when i see that i want to talk to i want to talk to you and we talked had a great conversation and um and so thanks for coming out to the show man i appreciate it yeah yeah no problem uh you know great time talking to you at the house for a couple hours like you said at the end of that like we could have just pushed record on that and that could have been a podcast but (laughs) glad to be back with you yeah man i look forward to uh unpacking it in a way in which we can put it out now. So uh, first, I'm just going to talk about some, some questions for me. I'm writing another book on leadership. And, um, and so it's questions for understanding where people come from, where leaders come from, where good leaders come from, and how they come about. And so if you just kind of walk me through childhood, where do you come from? Who do you come from? Um, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so uh, I'm from Northern California, right? Uh, so I spent a preponderance of my life in California. Because uh, even after joining the Marines, a lot of my time has been in San Diego, Southern California, and whatnot. But um, born out in the Bay Area, moved into the Valley just about an hour hour east of the Bay Area, raised in Northern California. Uh, mom and dad divorced when I was in the uh, the fourth grade. Both ended up remarrying. So because they remarried when I was relatively young, have a pretty big extended family essentially. So I have two stepbrothers on my mom's side, a uh, full blood brother, uh, and then two stepsisters on my dad's side. Um, we all pretty much grew up together, so we're pretty tight-knit uh, as far as all the siblings go and whatnot. Hmm. Um, like I said, they were divorced, uh, each remarried. My dad is still with my stepmom. Uh, my mom is is divorced from my stepdad, but they were together for 20-plus years um you know so it's very tight with with my stepbrothers and with my stepdad still and everything like that uh pretty good uh childhood you know i'd say the what is i guess maybe a normal childhood for most most american kids which is uh good times and bad times right yeah, yeah. uh so a little bit of everything you know my dad getting back up on his feet after the divorce was it took a few years and so 
we experienced a little bit of rough times as kids, uh, you know, in those fourth, fifth, sixth grade years. Uh, same thing with my mom and my stepdad. They had a, a pretty, pretty crazy re relationship, uh, you know, and it's no, no fault of anybody. It's just, you know, people are imperfect. And sometimes that, that just comes out in the worst of ways, uh, in relationships and, and it is mm -hmm. what it is, but, uh, all of those experiences certainly, you know, build into who I am and, and kind of the things that make me who I am, especially me. I, I now that I reflect on it being the oldest of all the siblings, I felt like a lot of the times I was trying to like keep it together myself for my younger siblings so that, mm -hmm. you know, when we were experiencing hard times or, or rough situations that they could like lean on me and see like, Hey, he's, he's all right. You know, we should be okay too kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, as you're coming up, do are you in team sports? Are you playing sports? No, no, I wasn't really big into sports. Uh, you know, I had, had a lot of friends that, that did play sports and I always kind of wanted to do it, honestly. Uh, as a kid, I was really like afraid of doing that stuff. I was always, uh, I felt like people's opinions of me, like I, I felt that like very strongly when I was a kid, like I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want to go out there. I thought I was going to suck. People were going to laugh at me. Like that's like just, I was very self-conscious as a kid. Um, and so I never got into team sports, even though I wanted to, like, I always wanted to play baseball. I always wanted to play football. I always wanted to do these things. I just didn't have a lot of confidence to do those things. Um, so I never really got into it until about high school. I did join the golf team, played golf for, for three years on varsity golf. Uh, we had a great team, ended up winning, uh, Northern California, like doing some great things, but you know, golf isn't like the, uh, you know, you're not bringing home all, all the chicks with a, a varsity golf jacket, but, uh, it was a good time. I played golf my entire life. Um, and so that was about the extent of the, the sports, but no, I never really got into it. I was always very self-conscious and I didn't really break out of that mold of self-consciousness, I guess, until a little bit later on in my Marine Corps career. Where, where do you think that came from? Uh, you know, it's hard to tell because it's not like I didn't have, you know, very supportive parents and supportive structure. I mean, my grandparents, my parents, like no matter what was happening in the family dynamic, they were always extremely supportive of me. Um, I think that it was just, I remember being very self-conscious back to as, as long as I had memories, right? Uh, mm. So as, as long as I was a kid, I always just felt very self-conscious. Like I was never going to be the guy to get the girl kind of thing. Uh, I was never going to be the guy to be the, the sports team captain or, or do any of those things. Like that's just, it was just very ingrained in me. I, I think throughout most of my life, and it didn't make me like a loner or, or like a loser or anything in school. Like I had, I was kind of in like, the, I wasn't like the cool guy, but I was in a good group of friends and, you know, I was doing good things. It's just that no matter where I was at or what I was doing, I always felt a little bit self-conscious, even though like, you know, I was a relatively smart kid, got good grades, all those things. So it didn't really drag me down or, or it wasn't really detrimental. And I never felt like really depressed about it. I just have always felt really self-conscious as a kid growing up. Hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, it's, it's, uh, <coughs> I'm not going to say that I was self-conscious as a kid, but there was like some bullying and some things like that when I was younger, probably like third grade, fourth grade. And those things hurt, hurt my confidence. Probably I would say, uh, for a couple of years. And what's weird is the people that did it to me, I'm still friends with today, but it really like kind of crushed, <laughs> kind of crushed my confidence as a small redheaded kid. Um, yeah, so gotcha. So, um, no team sports. What are you doing for fun? What What is your hobbies growing up? If you're not If you're not playing sports, are you hunting, fishing, skateboarding? 
Yeah, so Northern California, man, I, I didn't even meet anybody that had actually ever hunted until <laughs> I joined the Marine Corps. And I mean, later on in the Marine Corps, too, because I was in San Diego and, and Okinawa in the beginning of my career. Poor Not until I really came out to the East Coast that I even met anybody that actually like legitimately hunted. But uh, no, Northern California, I mean, the, I'm from a pretty, pretty small town. I think it's uh, population was like 15,000. There's a, a little bit bigger town next next door, which was 40,000. So, but it's like, that's it. Those are the only two towns really in the, in the valley, unless you really go a far distance to get to the next big town. Um, so pretty tight-knit community as far as that goes. Honestly, every day, every weekend, hanging out with a group of friends, doing kid stuff at the same time, like whatever that is, like going out to, uh, going out to the pastures and trying to catch snakes and <laughs> stuff like that. So like a little bit of everything, but honestly, just hanging out with friends, uh, doing a lot of stuff like that. Like I said, I, I did have like a pretty good life at the same time because my mom and my stepdad, uh, they had enough money to give us a pretty cool life. Uh, you know, our family had like a houseboat on that side of the family. So we'd go out to the lake almost every weekend during the summer and just have like the best, the best life you could have as a kid, <laughs> you know, wakeboarding, kneeboarding, you know, boating, jet skiing, uh, in the wintertime, snowboarding, like just doing a lot of cool stuff, uh, but also just being a knucklehead as a, as a young kid. Uh, going into high school, um, yeah, just a lot of hanging out with friends, and there's not much else to do in a small town like that, honestly. Yeah. Uh, thinking that Northern California was everything there was in the world, and I thought it was the best place ever, and that I'd never want to leave uh, until I got to living in Southern California and other places. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Roger that. So you play golf hanging out with friends what is your what's your earliest uh memory or or thoughts of joining service uh well growing up i always i don't know i, I always had like some affinity towards like the military and military service and all that stuff. like i just admired it since mm -hmm. as young as i could ever remember and mm -hmm. most of that's probably because my grandfather i spent a lot of time with my grandfather growing up uh, he was a big influence on me, you know, just like my favorite person kind of thing growing up. And he was an Air Force pilot in Vietnam. Uh, he was very proud of his service, right? And he ended up getting out after Vietnam and becoming a an airline pilot. And he flew for TWA for the rest of his career until he retired. So he would all, you know, go over to his house and he's got like this memorabilia. He's got his medals on the wall. He's got all that stuff. And he's got this big glass case, I remember at his house when I was a kid and we'd go up to it and look at it and you know in there is like purple hearts and all kinds of other stuff from his father who who served in World War II and then his grandfather which would be my great great grandfather uh or my great great grandfather who served in World War One and actually fought for Scotland before they immigrated to the United States in 1919. Wow so, that's some deep history. Service there. goes back pretty far right and it, it jumped a generation right my grandfather nobody served uh in the next generation and then it came uh, to me and I ended up serving, but so I remember that as a kid and just loving that stuff. Always, you know, all I had was GI Joe's. All we played was was cops and robbers or airsoft wars or whatever it was as kids. Um, so love that stuff. Always, you know, my family, my dad, my mom, step parents, all of them. Like everybody's very patriotic at the same time. Um, so very patriotic. You know, American flag, everything. Uh, just growing up in that time frame, right? You know, and and growing up in I'm 31 years old. So, you know, remembering 9-11, I was in the fourth grade, woke up, watched the towers fall, not really knowing what that meant back then, obviously, as a fourth grader, but watching the invasion on TV into Iraq, you know, two years mm -hmm. later, growing up, seeing 
my my best friends older brothers deploying and joining the marine corps and going off overseas and stuff and i remember as a young like freshman sophomore we we see both of my best friends both of their older brothers join the marine corps and we just thought that was the coolest thing ever uh and so me and my my two other best friends throughout high school were just like hey when we get out of the get out of high school we're, we're joining the military we're joining the marine corps together or something like that mm-hmm. uh, but we never gave it much thought like we just said that we were going to do that but we never actually like put any kind of like anything behind it so we get to the end of high school and we're just like what am i going to do with my life like i i didn't prepare myself to go to college i I had good grades, but I never really applied myself in, mm. in high school. I just wanted to have fun. Um, so if I really applied myself, I could have done something, but I did not do that. I just wanted to have a good time. So got to the end of high school and it's like, everybody's just going to go to junior college, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so I, I just applied to junior college because I figured that's what we what everybody was doing. So I just did that to stick around. And uh, I was halfway through my freshman year at, at, at a junior college in, in my, my hometown. And it's the corniest story ever. I don't even like telling it, but <laughs> I, I was sitting there, sitting there on Christmas break. Right. And I'm by myself and I'm watching Pearl Harbor. Right. And that's not the war movie of all war movies, but uh, that's a good Pearl one Har- though. A little love yeah. to it, but uh... I think that was the last time I watched it. Right. And that was 2010. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching Pearl Harbor on, on Christmas break uh, as a freshman in college. And I just it's like, man, I'm like, you know, it's, you, you just got that patriotic blood flowing through. You're just watching a war two movie of, of any caliber. And I'm just like, man, what is it going to be like if I go through the rest of my life and I never actually do that? Like, mm-hmm. and so that, that thought like really like stuck with me at that point, I spent the rest of Christmas break, like thinking about that. Like, what if I go through the rest of my life, not knowing what it could have been like if I joined the military. And so I spent like the next three, four weeks, just researching every branch and figuring out everything, laying out questions and everything. And then I told my parents, I'm like, Hey, I want to go and talk to a recruiter. Um, I'm going to go and talk to a recruiter. And so I did. Um, and of course my grandfather's calling me, trying to talk me into going and talking to the air force. Yeah. I'm like, no, I want to be a Marine. He's like, you're going to be a, a bullet sponge. You're going to get killed. Like yep. all these things. And he's like, don't do that. And so he, you know, he's, we spent a couple hours on the phone. I ended up telling him like, all right, I will do you the, you know, you the courtesy and go to the air force recruiter first, at least. And so I go and do that. Um, that guy was a, a tool. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I walked in the air force recruiting office. Like, and like I said, I, I'd spent weeks researching everything. And so I had that, this list of like 16 or whatever questions that I want, like wanted answered. Right. And so I go in there after setting my appointment and I'm like, Hey, you know, I got these questions and I start going through them and he's giving me like really short, like one word answer kind of yeah. things. And I can tell he's a little ticked off and he's, he's in his PT uniform, his like Charlie shirt equivalent is like slung over the back of his chair. And so he's just like, at like question four, he's just like, Hey man, he's like, I get it. You got all these questions and you did all this research. Uh, he's like this stack of papers right here. And he points to like this fat stack of papers. He's like, these are all the people that want to be in the air force. So if you want to join, come back and let me know when you want to join. If not, you know, maybe another branch is for you or something like that. I was like, Oh shit. I was yeah, like, all right, well, thank you, sir. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I stood up, shook his hand, and I just walked out. And right next door is the Marine Corps recruiting office. So I just go and I start writing the numbers down off their their uh, their window. Yeah. And as I'm doing that, a, a Marine recruiter walks out. He's like heading to an appointment. And he just walks out. He looks at me. He's like, you want to be a Marine? I'm like, yes, sir. And he's like, all right, get in here. So <laughs> I go in there. And I spend like three hours in there. Uh, and I'm, I'm there for like the rest of the night just talking to the Marine recruiter. 
And after that, I was sold. I, I you know, I went home. I told my mom, I'm like, I'm joining the Marine Corps. And she's just like about to cry. She's like, call Shit. your grandfather right now. Um, so I, I tell him and he's like, he's like, that's fucking bullshit. I'm like, you know, he's a lieutenant colonel from the yeah. Air Force. He's like, he's like, that's bullshit. He's like, I'll fly you up here to, to Oregon tomorrow and we can go to talk to a recruiter, you know, together or I'll fly down to Northern California and we'll go and talk to that recruiter together yeah and i'm like no grandpa i'm like i'm joining ring quarry and so like Ship after that you know, he still tried to <laughs> yeah he still tried to talk me out of it uh for a long time but you know it, when i walked across the parade deck you know a year later uh he was he was standing there with their marine corps hat on you know the proudest as could be yeah so, that's awesome yeah so always always just really patriotic always loved the military loved american things and i think that you know i just always had that inkling for it and even when i was in college I was going to college to be a U.S. history teacher. Like, I love U.S. history. And I figured, you know, at the end of the day, like, U.S. history is the military, right? Mm. And and wars and, and all those things. That is what shapes history. Uh, so why not be a part of it? It's kind of my thought process, too. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I wouldn't say that's a corny story. That's a good story. It's uh, <laughs> It's funny how many different stories you hear like that. Somebody's in college and then something hits them and they're like, this ain't it. I'm leaving, yeah. you know, and... and that's that's awesome. So you join. I assume you're just going to stay out there in California to go to Those hopes <laughs> to go to to go to recruit training, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Recruit training. Yeah. San yeah. Diego. Um, thinking that I'm going to be, uh, signed up, you know, communications contract only knowing that radio operators existed in there. My recruiter was a radio operator who was with the infantry. And he's like, dude, you'll be a radar operator. You'll be right there with the infantry, just like I was. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, Sweet. And so, yeah, go through, go through, do recruit training. That's no problem. Uh, it's a good time. Get done with MCT and like the last night of MCT, like they post all the MOSs on the, on the wall, and so you got to yeah. read it off. And I already knew I was going to Twine Palms to do comm school. Me and my best friend, like we enlisted together. Um, we went through boot camp together. Like we're rack mates. We're MCT together. Everything. And we had the same contract. Um, and so we go and look at it and it said, oh, six, like zero six fifty one data networking specialist. And I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> it's um, a different part of comms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we both go back to our racks and we got, you know, pull out our iPhone fours or whatever. And we start Googling like, what the hell is a data networking operator? Uh, and basically all we could find was like a couple of posts where it's like, you're going to be sitting in the air conditioning all the time. And we're like, hey, that's not, that <laughs> doesn't sound like a bad job. Yeah. Like, I mean, when we join, all we want to be is infantry. But after doing, you know, a month of MCT and just living out in the, you know, hiking all the time, we're like, AC sounds pretty good too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we spent eight months doing the comm, the comm school because that's a pretty intensive track to become a cyber networking guy. Um, and then after that, it's it's orders to Okinawa, even though everybody put Camp Pendleton as their like wish list. Um, I had like 60 people in my class and I want to say 56 of us got orders to Okinawa and the four mm -hmm. that didn't were the married guys, the four married guys. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. but that was the best thing that ever could happen. Cause I think Okinawa is the best place that a junior Marine, like a first term Marine could ever possibly go. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. What does that look like as a, as a junior Marine in Okinawa? But it's, it was, you know, the biggest blessing in disguise, right? First, get me out of California, get me some culture. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but like mm -hmm. I said, I thought California was the the end all be all to the world. And it's a nice place. Uh, but put me in some culture, get me some life experience, allow me to get away from the nest too, where I'm not, you know, tempted to drive home yep. to spend time with my family and my friends back home every single weekend kind of thing too. 
Um, I think that's a huge detriment to anybody that tries to get stationed right next to their house, especially in their first term. Uh, get away uh, and and learn who you're going to be. Um, so getting out there to Okinawa was was awesome. I got put into a Marine Wing Support Squadron 172, so part of the first mall, but it's uh it was like the only ground unit under the mall. So it's like you're detached from the flight line. You're not over there. You're with the the uh, combat engineers, the motor T guys, and the and the uh, the firefighters. Sure. And so over there, um, got put on a great base. Um, was surrounded by good, you know, good leaders for what I needed at the time. Right. Uh, you know, I'm not. I, I wouldn't look to most of them and say like, "Oh man, that's leadership." Like you should go and write a book and be like the next Simon Sinek or anything like that. But um, they were they were what I needed as a young PFC Lance Corporal, right? They were a bunch of hard ass NCOs, even though like we're swinging with the wing, like those dudes are out there messing you up and like making you understand like what it is to be a Marine right now at that young age, just kind of like snapping into place. And not all the methods were great. And, you know, some of those things are, that they did were illegal, obviously, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it was a great good, area, a good environment to, to get brought up in and, what I love about Okinawa, at least at that time frame, I, I know things have changed and everybody's always going to be nostalgic when they look back at the beginning part of their career. But um, at that time frame, 2011 to 2014, when I was out there as a junior Marine, I just, I can't think of anything else that I thought was like more than Marine Corps. Like you're living with your Marines, like with the Marines every day in the barracks, you're all going out together on the weekends. You're all going to the bars and the E club and, you know, everybody's pressing their camis and you know you're trying to look squared away during the week and if you're a junior marine your customs and courtesies are on point and you're not walking on the grass and like all these like traditional marine corps things which you know people a lot of people don't think are very important nowadays like it was just it was just the way of life over there and people were very proud about it mm -hmm. um and so like i thought that was a pretty cool thing i didn't understand there was any different at the time anyways i just thought this is the marine corps mm -hmm. uh, and so like to be a young nco over there and get promoted to sergeant and corporal over there before i came back because so, i did pick up pretty quick um which was you know good and bad i was i was very inexperienced at the time but to be a young nco over there just like cracking the whip and just being like a little bulldog uh it was it was a good time it was a good way to come up um obviously you know you learn more as you as you grow up but it was a good time oh yeah and your day-to-day -day in okinawa you're just running your job you're learning your job going out and training with with the guys that you're training with uh and anything ever happened while you were over there no i mean honestly we're a non-deployable unit over there so like we got to do like little field ops where we go out to cobra gold in thailand for a month or mm -hmm. you know balakatan in the philippines or something like that um so we got to do some cool experiences I got to do Thailand. I got to do Korea. I got to, you know, go build expeditionary, you know, landing strips out on some islands in in the uh, in Japan. Got to visit a lot of Okinawa and just do cool stuff and just have fun, uh, honestly, with, and build a great group of friends. Uh, so that that's the best part of the experience. Nobody did any deployments at that time, friend. Like there's literally no nobody from my unit that deployed or do anything like that. It's just you're just there doing the regular operations, uh, but getting to learn the Indo-Pacific and stuff like that. Um, and it was just a, a good time overall. Check. Check. So where do we go after Okinawa? Now you're uh, you say you're a sergeant there. Yeah. Yeah. So I picked up sergeant at two years and nine months in the Marine Corps. So cooking. Is, uh, pretty, <laughs> like I don't even, I don't even have a good cookie, right? Uh, I don't even have a good cookie as a sergeant. That's moving, so, man. Dude, it was, it was moving. Right. Um, uh, and he, honestly, when I, 
when I found out that I was going to pick up Sergeant, like when I, the public, the cutting scores published, I was like, Oh shit. Um, I had only been a corporal for nine months. Um, wow. and I was just like, man, I don't, I don't even know how to be a corporal yet. Uh, and I'm about to pin on Sergeant. I'm not going to go and tell anybody. I don't know how to like be a corporal yet. Like I'm just right. going to do it and figure it out. Right. Um, and I feel like I had a, a pretty level head as a young guy. Um, I was always very like introspective and like thinking about like, am I doing the right thing? Am I like, even in my dumbest times, like I was always like very like forward thinking, like, like, am I setting myself up for success? Am I doing the right thing? Are we not, are we going to get in trouble if we do this? Like I was always kind of like the guy to like talk people out of doing like the dumb things or at least not get myself in the, involved in dumb things. So I think at least having that kind of mindset at a young age, really did at least set me up to i might not be experienced and i might not be you know have all this experience as a young sergeant but at least i'm a, a level-headed guy and i'm in, in control of my emotions and stuff like that for the most part which so might not sound like a lot but in the first six or eight years of being a marine that's that's not the norm yeah. that's not the norm like most yeah. people don't have emotional intelligence most people are worried about let's do what we got to do get on libo hit the bars see the ladies you know, do that until the wee hours of the morning and stumble into formation and, and, and hit reset. Like that's, that's a lot of the culture. And so that's awesome that at a young age, you realize that, or, or we're already thinking that. And where do you think that came from? Like emotional uh, intelligence. I think that stems back. I think that stems back to early on in my childhood too. Right. And like, so as long as I can think about, you know, me being a selfish con subconscious kid, like I talked about earlier, as long as I can look back, I can think about myself even as a really young kid, like always thinking about second and third order effects of doing things and always having like the mindset that if I do this, even if it is crazy, like I got to do it in the smartest way possible so that we don't get in trouble or we don't get hurt or, or somebody doesn't find out. Like I, I just always was thinking about things and trying to, even when I was running with like the worst crew of kids possible, like I was always trying to make sure that we were okay and that nobody's going to get in trouble and we weren't going to do the worst thing. Like, so I just always had that kind of mindset. And a lot of it probably was because I was the oldest brother and I was always looking out for my younger brothers, mm -hmm. especially when we were going through rough times. Um, you know, my family, like just my, my parents, like a lot of like uh, internal, like fighting and stuff like that. And so like trying to shield them from that and just thinking about like taking care of other people and like at a very young age, probably just set me up for that, honestly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it just carried carried through life. And I don't know, I, I've always just been somebody that's people. A lot of my friends like just describe me as like stoic nowadays, but but before anybody would ever describe me as stoic, they'd probably just describe me as like cold or like emotionless mm. uh, at certain times too. Yeah, because uh, I just I have always been very in control of my emotions. Like I don't like just you're not going to see me have like emotional outburst usually or anything like that. Um, and so a lot of that kind of just feeds in like my, my overall personality as well. Uh, and sometimes that's at a detriment, right? That's, that's a lot of the guys are, are kind of like that too, but, uh, I definitely lean pretty heavy towards that kind of, uh, personality. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Um, you know, if, if you're in an organization like this, sometimes controlling that emotion is very helpful for the leader you're going to be. Uh, but you know, in a family dynamic, when you have a spouse and stuff, it's, it's a little bit hard sometimes. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, um, I feel like I have good emotional intelligence, but after I was blown up, something, I have no control anymore. Like I can control, like, let's say my bearing and such 
to an extent, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, I you know, and I don't know what you know, I don't know what that is. I'm still looking into it. I got a, I'm working with a couple of doctors, brain doctors, about like trying to trying to really understand what that is. Like, wh- what portion of my brain is damaged to have changed the emotion circuit and, and things like that? It's very strange. Um, but I don't meet too many people that, that, that have good emotional intelligence, um, really in my life at all. And maybe it's the people Mm -hmm. that I'm meeting, but, um, on the show, I have great guys. I bring great guests in, but like in my immediate community, it's a bunch of, you know, a bunch of bros. It's a bunch of guys that retired around the same time I did. And, you know, (coughs) some not some older, some younger, but like when I sit down and have a conversation with somebody, you can you can tell um, who who has control and who doesn't have control, and it's not a bad thing. I wouldn't say it's a bad thing. I don't have any of it, so I'm not. It's not like a you know me criticizing anything. But when you, I, I could see where you uh, where you say people thought you had you were cold. That yeah. makes perfect sense to me because people that I know that have great emotional uh, IQ, emotional intelligence, and control are like that. It's like man, I don't even know if that person's like catching all this, but they are, they're just catching it and processing it and, uh, and have control. So I think that's good. I've, I've actually found, uh, like found letters and stuff like that from like my grandparents to my parents and stuff like where they were discussing like Chase just doesn't show emotions. And this is when I'm like, or when you're little eight, nine, 10. Yeah. And they're like, he just doesn't show them. Like I couldn't, uh, and this is like, we're talking about like the detriment of it. Like as a kid, like I couldn't tell somebody I like, I love you. I don't, I don't think I ever told like my parents or anything like that, that I love them until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like just saying things like that are, were, were very hard for me. Um, and a lot of it was because of like the, the family dynamic and like some of the bad things that were going on. Like I just felt like, you know, those are the things that, that either cause people to act out or it causes them to internalize too. Right. Um, so like a lot of the stuff was like self-coping, like probably like internalized, like don't show emotion, just stuff it all inside like mm. man man stuff right like bad man stuff. was there times um, that was there times that things were bad where if you showed emotion things would be worse no uh i don't think so honestly i think that's just my own way of dealing with it like my like i never had to deal with like abuse or anything like towards me sure everything was you know fighting and stuff between my parents and and like alcoholism or or drug abuse or whatever it is that's happening but it was always like at a different level and never was a direct like i was going to get punished for it or anything like that so i never had to like cope because of anything like that i think that's just how i actually just dealt with it honestly Mm -hmm. uh and so like that really just transferred into you know building who i was later on in life and just kind of making me somebody that was always you know thinking about things in a different way than maybe some other 19 or 20 year old corporals and sergeants at the time uh which at least, at least I, I think I had that going for me, which, which carried me through until I got more experience and got sure. more understanding of how to be a leader. At least I was a good person in that sense. And I could at least, uh, very good at managing my own daily tasks, my own workload, my own, like I was always good at doing those things. And so, you know, my leadership always loved me cause I was just like this, like, it's like perfect Marine kind of thing. Like I just always did the right thing and I always knew what to do and where to be. And I had great initiative and all those things. Uh, and so I guess just the culture of the Marine Corps and the organization, like what they expect of Marines, like those things were always very easy for me. Cause I very much like, if you ever do like the personality test, like I'm very high in trait conscientiousness. Like I love order. I love discipline. I mm. love like 
understanding the rules and knowing like these are the rules okay cool i can succeed in this environment like this is extremely easy for me to do i don't i don't feel like i need to be a rule breaker um and, and of course like later on in life when you get more experience you you realize there's times where you where you need to break the rules or whatever it is but i just love that environment and i thrived in it very easily and so when i got in the marine corps everything felt very easy in that sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now we'll, we'll, i'll come back but as far as your um as far as your uh, emotions, you said that you know when you're a kid, it'd be very hard to tell somebody that you loved them and things like that. Have mm-hmm. do you have issues? Not issues, but do you have some of those same traits when it comes to your family or like your your wife and kids or no? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, so like not, not with my kid. At least I haven't experienced anything like that with my kid yet. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, she's two years old. Um, so like every time I see, her, I probably tell her I love her a million times a day, right? And I give her a kiss on the cheek or on the head a hundred times. So I don't experience any of that yet. Like, um, but we don't know where that will, where that will go. Like what kind of parts of my personality will be conflicting when she's older. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but with my wife, yeah, for sure. Um, there's, you know, my, my wife would tell you like, I'm, I'm a great husband and all these, all these great things, but there's been plenty of times where it's, it's been extremely hard for me to tell her like, open up about things that are bothering me, mm-hmm. uh, open up, open up about things that are eating at me. Like I just, you know, just stuff it away, stuff it away, stuff it away. Uh, and so there's times that we went to counseling, like, um, after, after the Las Vegas shooting, we ended up going to counseling because, um, well, I, I had free counseling through the, through the Marine Corps. Right. And we were, we were just dating at the time. Um, and so my wife or my girlfriend at the time, uh, she didn't have counseling. And so I was like, Hey, look, this military one source, I get like 16 free counseling sessions. We'll just go in under me, right. We'll do couple couples counseling, uh, therapy, post-traumatic stress therapy, whatever, um, as a couple and it'll be free because I'm military. And so we did that and it ended up, uh, like the first couple sessions was like post-traumatic stress, you know, uh, therapy counseling and then it turned into like couples counseling where she's like yeah he doesn't open up about anything uh wait we, yeah, we gotta stop right there yeah uh if you don't mind because i remember talking about it offline you know when we talked but can you go into why you would need counseling for the las vegas shooting uh yeah do you, do you want me to tell a story or talk about just like why we wanted the counseling no, i want you to tell the story yeah yeah okay um, uh yeah so 2017 so i mean we're not far off from the the timeline that we were already on right so 2014 i get stationed back in california leaving okinawa i get sent to a first transportation support battalion which is a big motor t battalion basically um under the first mlg and so luckily like i I got there in 2014 when we were standing up the battalion i literally Mm -hmm, checked mm -hmm. in and it was a a portable trailer was the battalion headquarters and yep. staff and everything and so like the the sergeant major who was a first sergeant was in one office and then in the one cubicle was for the s1 one cubicle was for the s6 one like so on and so forth there's 20 people in the battalion when i checked in and so i got to be like a plate a plate holder in that battalion and stand it up build it from 20 people to to uh like you know 700 people which was a an, an amazing experience as a young sergeant too right yeah. uh, all things that started to build into my my understanding of the marine corps and my job and everything so that's 2014. Uh, honestly, nothing special happens from 2014 to 17. Uh, just a lot of like ITXs, deserts, yep. desert cemeteries, steel knights, 29 palms out the ass kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but again, spending some time as a sergeant, just learning my job, learning how to lead Marines, uh, still not very good, but a good dude, at least, which carried me through, I think. Um, 
2017, I, or 2016, I'd gotten selected. So after two years and nine months as a sergeant, I was selected for staff sergeant. Uh, so I pinned on staff sergeant at 24 years old, five and a half years in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Um, so again, Moving. extremely young, not really like extremely confident at this point, extremely confident in my job, my abilities, uh, in the MOS. Like I was, I was probably too confident. Um, so ready to be a staff sergeant in that sense, not ready to be a staff sergeant in the sense of what I know a staff sergeant should be nowadays. Like looking back on like what I think a, a staff NCO should provide leadership mentorship wise too young to even know it. Uh, so not my own fault, mm. just too young. Um, but 2017, I'm a brand new staff sergeant. Um, I, I had met my, my wife. Uh, so my girlfriend at the time, uh, we had been dating for, we'd only been dating for like two weeks when she was like, Hey, there's a country concert coming up in Las Vegas. It's going to be this huge concert. Um, would you want to go? Uh, and I think we'd been dating for like three weeks and I was like, yeah. And I'm like, when is it? She's like October. I'm like, that's like six months from now. We've been <laughs> talking, hanging out for like three weeks. I'm like, yeah, let's buy tickets. Uh, and so we, we bought tickets and, you know, both of us kind of internally thinking, uh, like, Hey, if it doesn't work out, we still have tickets. tickets. We need to resell them <laughs> or go with somebody else. Right. Yeah. Um, so it is what it is. Just 24 years old, just dating, having a good time. Um, so we bought these tickets and, and honestly, like me, me and my wife was just like a whirlwind, like just the best relationship ever. Like those first six months were just like, again, nostalgic looking back on it. Like we just had the greatest time ever. Um, and so October rolls around, we've been dating for six, seven months. Um, and so we go to Las Vegas, I take some leave and we go to Las Vegas for this country concert. And it's a three day route 91, uh, country fest. So we're staying in the, um, yeah, what, what is the name? The, the Luxor, it's the, the pyramid hotel, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, right next to the MJ or across from the MGM grand right next to New York, New York, and then the Mandalay Bay is right next to it as well. And so I'm familiar with Las Vegas. I've been there plenty of times. Uh, my grandparents at the time were living in Henderson, which is the town next door to it. Um, so we go to Vegas and we go to this country concert. Like I love country. She loves country. Um, so we're having a great time. First two, three days of the, the country concert was, was amazing. Just the, the most fun you could ever imagine. Right. Uh, it's something about getting a whole bunch of people in the same venue that all love the same kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody's, everybody's having a great time. Um, and we get to the last night as, as everybody knows, history will tell you. Right. Um, and so the last night is the headliner, Jason Aldean, and we both love Jason Aldean at the time. And so we, we were like, all right, we got to get to the front of the stage. Right. And so this, this venue is set up, uh, it's basically just one large rectangle. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and facing basically towards the, the South end of the strip is the main stage. And so it's basically facing like right next to the Mandalay Bay hotel. And so we're like, all right, let's go up to the right hand side, basically, which is closest to the Las Vegas strip and closest to Mandalay Bay. We just made our way, pushed our way up for like 20 minutes to get to the, the front as close as we could. And so we're about 20, I'd say about 20 yards away from the front of the stage. So pretty close. And, um, yeah, so we're listening to the last set of this three day country fest and everybody's having a great time as you could expect. And he gets to his, I think it was like his second to last or third to last song of the night. Uh, and he starts singing it like the first couple of words. And then you just hear like this, like cracking go off, like, mm -hmm. and so 
you know, I'm, I'm in the military long enough to have been on enough rifle ranges, uh, to know what gunshots sound like and all that stuff. Right. The first, the first, first, like, although that's where my mind first went, I was like, ah, it didn't sound like, it didn't sound like it. Right. It's, it's probably like somebody lit a pack of black cats and threw it on, uh, threw it on Las Vegas strip right outside. Like that's what I was in, initially thinking. Uh, now everybody stopped and paused for a second. Like even Jason Aldean on stage, like paused for a second, like, and you could hear like the murmurings in the crowd, like, was that gunshots? Was that fireworks? Was that the speakers cracking? Like nobody knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's mind probably went to, is that gunshots? But nobody really like accepted that as the thing. And, and even me, like, I was like, that didn't, you know, it sounded like it, but it's probably, probably firecrackers. Um, or I, you know, I thought somebody's having like a shootout or something on Las Vegas strip right next to us. Cause that could, that's a, a real possibility too. And so either way, that's, you know, that's where my mind initially goes. And after that, like two second delay of like everybody, like wondering what the hell is going on. A couple of seconds later, Jason Aldean picks up and continues singing the song. Right. And so we're like, oh, okay, all right, everything's cool. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he gets out like another line of the song and then another, another burst, like, and it was longer. Right. Uh, and so it was like a full 30, 30 round or whatever. And that one sounded different. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm sure the the first one was when he's shooting through the glass, right? And so maybe that was some of it um, that altered the sound or what it was. But the second one was, you know, free of obstruction. He he's shooting down into the crowd, and uh, so that one sounded different. And you could hear the the you could hear the the sound bouncing off the hotels, you know, because we're we're surrounded inside this venue, surrounded by you know skyscraper hotels. And so the, the sound is bouncing off those hotels. And, and I'm speaking about this from a, you know, a re, you know, hindsight, looking back, I'm just saying what was happening. But in the moment, it sounds like Every, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's at, like, sh- like shootings coming from everywhere at that point in time, because it's bouncing off of six hotels. It's the actual repeat of the rifle coming from the hotel. Mm-hmm. And it's the ricochets that are now hitting the metal gates you know, the concrete around us. So you're hearing the snapping coming overhead. You're hearing the, the snapping when it hits the concrete um, because where me and my wife were, were positioned was where he was firing at. It was that right-hand side of the stage. And so if you ever look at the, like the FBI reports or the police reports, or whatever, like you'll see where they mark the dead bodies and where people were shot at. Uh, and that's, that's where we were at. Um, so we're hearing all, all those dis- different parts. And so, so that second burst comes through the crowd and I hear it and I'm like, that's gunshots. Um, and nobody knows what to do, right? Every we're in a crowd, there's 22,000 people at the concert. I'd say on that side, we're like watching Jason Aldean. Cause there's three stages going, uh, watching Jason Aldean, there's probably 10,000 people. Um, and so everybody's just standing there frozen. Nobody's moving or anything. So I grab, you know, now, I, are I'm you like, holding on to my wife? Sorry, uh, is anybody around your immediate area getting hit that that you can yeah, see so at the time? Yeah. yeah, so at that same moment, right, I'm, I'm holding on to my wife. Um, about 10 feet in front of us, there's a woman yells out, my friend's been shot. She just got shot in the arm. Um, and at that same time, we see Las Vegas police. They're in their, their like yellow vest, whatever. They're, they, and security, they start running into the crowd towards that woman. And that's, that's only about, you know, 10 feet in front of us, which is, you know, like maybe like 15 people because we're all tight, uh, packed in there. 
Mm-hmm. So I grabbed my wife uh, and you can hear other people like saying, oh my God, somebody just got shot. Somebody just got shot, whatever. Um, so I grabbed my wife's hand and I just turned to like, turn away from the stage to like start pushing through the crowd. Cause like nobody's moving. I'm like, I'm fucking moving. Like we're, we're starting to move towards an exit or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start moving with my wife and we start like pushing through the crowd and, um, and this is all happening in a matter of like five seconds. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next, the next burst comes through the crowd crack, 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 and every is like hitting everywhere. Right. Um, and when that next burst came through the crowd, everybody dropped, like everybody just, just dropped down to the ground. Uh, and when you're in a crowd that thick, as you can imagine, like when everybody else drops, you don't have a choice. Like you're dropping under the weight of everybody. So like mm-hmm. we fell down under the weight of everybody else drop, dropping to the ground. And so we've got people on our legs, people on our, like everybody's on top of each other. Like there's no, there's no other way about it. And so I'm like trapped under people. My wife is, is kind of under me, but like not her whole body. And so as that happens, I, I'm like, grab my wife. I'm trying to like pull her to get under like my body. Hmm. Um, and so I'm like trying to shield her if I can. Um, and that's, that's a pretty rough few moments because at that point now we're trapped under people. Now the, like the gunfire is pretty much unrelenting, right? You get a couple second pause when he's grabbing another rifle or reloading, whatever, but he's got hundred round magazines. He's got uh 60 round magazines, whatever he's got a lot. And he's got, you know, 20 ARs up there. So he's got them pre-positioned too. So you're only getting a couple seconds between the, the, Volleys, the burst. Yeah. Um, and everybody knows now like he had bump stocks so they're firing like at an automatic rate for the most part um so as we're laying there i'm like trying to pull my wife under and at the same time i'm also trying to like push myself up so i can look and like see where the hell the gunfire is coming from because at this point in time i'm thinking this is a terrorist attack right this is a country music festival it's a terrorist attack there's a bunch of red-blooded americans in here what better target um Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking there's people in the crowd, like they, they probably came in on the outskirts of the crowd and they're shooting into the crowd, like standing on the same level as us. So that's what I'm thinking. So I, I'm like looking up to, to like look around to see where the shooters are at. Cause at this point I'm thinking there's gotta be multiple shooters. Cause it's just so much gunfire coming at the same time with all the sounds going on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like looking around my, my wife, she's, um, you know, she, she knocks my hat, my hat off my head because she's trying to pull my head down. She's screaming like, no, you know, no baby don't. She thinks I'm going to like get up and like go and try and tackle somebody. <laughs> and so she's like trying to cover my head with her hand so that I don't get shot in the head kind of thing. And, um, people, you know, people talk about like, there's moments in your life that like, it, it might've only been a couple of seconds, but it feels like hours. Right. Mm. Uh, and in those few seconds, I remember there was about a 15 second window where so much went through my head. Um, I was just like, I can't believe we're actually in this situation. I can't believe that there's a terrorist attack happening right now. We're in it. And then the next thought is, is this like, is this how I'm going to die? This is, this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to get shot. Like I'm about to get shot and I'm going to die from, from a machine gun. Um, and then the next thought that comes through my head is like, I wonder what it's going to feel like to get shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder how bad this is going to hurt, uh, to get shot in the chest or in the head. And then the next, the next thought is like, I, I hope the bullets don't pass through my butt. Like I know what a five, five, six does or a seven, six, two. I'm like, I, I hope it doesn't make it through my body. Cause if it makes it through my body, then it's going to hit my, my girlfriend mm-hmm. uh, or my wife. Um, so like all those thoughts are going through my head. Like, I just remember that conversation inside my head very clearly. Um, so, you know, what is it going to feel like to, to die right now? Um, uh, was, it was just pretty nuts to be in a situation like that. Right. Um, so 
we're stuck in there for a little while uh for about 90 seconds is what i'd estimate um and during those 90 seconds he got off a little over 500 rounds mm-hmm. um and so once the crowd had like because again we were, we're so close to the stage like a lot of people had to get up and leave before we could get up and leave mm-hmm. uh so once that once enough people had gotten up um i was like hey we gotta like you know we gotta go um and some people were like in disbelief some people were like in the fetal position crying screaming uh some people are it's a country concert right it's the end of the night some people are drunk and just standing there with a beer in their hand saying like what are you guys freaking out about it's part of the show like literally remember seeing people like that and so we start crawling over some of the the people that are still laying down that are just immobile that can't do anything we start crawling over them until we can get to a place where we can actually stand up and so we, we probably crawl for like 20 feet or so over people and over um you know over their bodies and whatnot and get up and then we start to to run I, I have her by the hand and i'm pulling her and we're running and uh the whole time you can hear the bullets snapping and cracking around and hitting the concrete and whatnot um and we're like yelling at people like hey get out of here like especially the people that are like in disbelief like get up get out get out you know and so we end up making our way out of the venue on the like on the uh the east side so away from the las vegas strip um and police are already out there, like their guns drawn on the hoods of their car, like looking up at the hotels, whatever. Because hmm. um, they know it's from the hotels at this point. Even inside the venue, we knew it was the hotels at that point uh, because somebody yelled it out like, hey, it's coming from the hotels and and whatnot. So once we were, I remember as soon as we were getting ready to exit out of the gate, I was like, if we're going to, if we're going to get attacked by somebody on the ground, it's going to be right now because everybody's funneling out of this gate. It'd be a perfect place for a pipe bomb or you know just easy yeah. opportunity for for a line of sight for machine gun so like that's what i'm thinking as soon as we, we are heading towards the gate uh, and so we, we book it out of the gate you know people want to run to the police cars and i'm like we got to get away from the police because they're gonna be shooting at the police and so i just yell at my wife like we got to get away from the police we gotta they're gonna be shooting at them and so we start to run down the street and as we do that we like round a corner on, on reno avenue and i i know my way around this area a little bit so we round the corner and I, I pull out my phone to call my grandparents to tell them to come and pick us up and like, get us out of here. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I get on the phone with them and my wife is like begging to like stop running because we've just done a pretty mad sprint. And <laughs> you smoked she, her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, it was like 80 times two at least under, you know, some pretty relenting odds. Uh, yeah, so she yeah. smoked uh, and she's like, she's like gasping, like slow down, slow down. And so I slow down to like a fast walk and I'm still like pulling her while I'm like on the phone. <laughs> And I just call my grandparents. I'm like, Grandpa, there's been a terrorist attack. I need you to come down to the strip and pick us up. I'm going to drop my location on the iPhone. And this is like 10 o'clock at night. My grandparents are like 70 years old, right? And so he's just like, what's happening? I'm like, there's a terrorist attack. Come to the location. He And there's actual like bullets going, you know, in the background. So hopefully I was hearing you'd hear that, right? So I just hung up and I send the location. At that same time when that's happening, my wife sees a woman who's like panicking. And she's like gasping for air. And she's she's like by herself crying and whatnot on the phone. And my wife grabs her and she's like, Hey, are you by yourself? And the woman screams, she's like, Yes, you know, crying. She's like, Come with me. My boyfriend's a Marine. He'll he'll get us out of here. <laughs> and so the woman on the phone with her with her husband, she's like, Honey, I'm going. There's a Marine. I'm going with them. I love you. Goodbye. Right. And it's like, it's not the last thing you want to hear from your wife, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm going with a Marine. Uh, that but, night, that night may be different. Yeah, that that yeah. night, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, I thought that was funny. But uh, yeah, so she she hangs up and we, we latch arms. And I'm like, we're heading down the street. And I'm just thinking, I got to get them into, like, 
out, out of the street because yeah. at this point i'm thinking shooters are going to funnel out onto the streets and just start picking us off as we walk down the like as everybody's running down the streets it's an yeah. easy target so i'm looking for a dumpster or something to like get them behind and i see this big like scrap of like plywood and and pallets and, and scrap metal and stuff and so i throw them behind there and um we're like, all right, let's stay quiet. I'm going to look out at the street to see like if any shooters are coming or whatever. And at that time, like more and more people are starting to escape and get out there into those areas. And people are like jumping under cars and hiding in bushes and anywhere they can get to. Right. And the, the fence behind us is, is all barbed wire on the top because it's the fence that links to Las Vegas airport. Yeah. And so we can't hop over the fence because it's just massive amount of barbed wire on uh, some of the areas down the way they had run, ran pickup trucks through the fence and people were running out onto the Las Vegas, um, airport strip and so there's people actually running down the airport strip behind us but we didn't know where those f-150s had, had plowed through the fence but um so at that time more people were coming i'm like i'm like yelling or not yelling but i'm like telling people i'm like hey keep your voice down because people are like panicking crying on the phone i'm like yeah. keep your voice down like we got to be quiet here kind of thing i'm like hey turn down the the lights on your phone like all these different things trying to keep everybody around us like to not give away everybody's position and at that time, two more girls come up and they're like crying. You know, one of them is dragging the other and she, the girl's like, my leg's broken, my leg's broken. She's crying. And so like, we take those two young girls, they're like 19 years old. Um, we, we put them behind the, the little thing that we have, the little cover that we have. And my, my girl or my wife is calming them down. She, I'm just like telling her, I'm like, you got to calm them down. You got to keep them quiet. Um, and I, this whole time, like coordinating with my grandparents, like, hey, look, come down Tropicana Avenue, like this direction uh and let me know when you're this far out and i'll, I'll we'll we'll book it there um and as that's happening the another crazy exchange you know i'm, I'm telling these girls hey we're, we're gonna have to move they mm -hmm. police are gonna be cordoning off a, like a few block area and my grandparents aren't gonna be able to get into the police cordon like we have to get outside of the cordon if we want to escape this area and the girls are like freaking out because they've got this preconceived notion of safety because we're behind some kind of the illusion of safety. It, yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. Right. And it's, it's cover. It's not, or it's, it's concealment. It's not, you know, we're not, we're not covered mm -hmm, from anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm telling them like, we got to move and you know, that freaks them out. And so, uh, one of the girls, the one without the, the messed up leg, she's, she's like, are you really a Marine? Are you really? And like, she's like, you know, searching for like hope. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, in this moment, I'm like, man, we gotta, we gotta move. Like, who gives a fuck? Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I'm like, yeah. And so I pull out my phone. And I show her like the lock screen on my phone. It's like me and my, me and my wife at, at a wedding, and I'm in my dress boots as a sergeant. And um, she sees it, and she just like turns to her friend. She's like, oh my god, he really is a marine. It's gonna be okay. Mm. Um, and so I'm like, all right, we gotta move. So we get out, out of that. We sling the girl. You know, sling her, her her um, arm around my shoulders to support her. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and that was, that was a, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I ever talked to anybody about this before, but like when I slung her arm around my shoulder, I, I was like, um, the first thing that went through my head is like, she's going to slow us down. And like, <laughs> I might get killed because of her. Cause like, this, uh, you know, she's, she's not, she wasn't a, like a small woman, like my wife, she was, she was bigger and not like uh, fat or anything, but just like bigger. Mm -hmm. I'm like taking her out is going to slow us down. Uh, I can't just throw her on my shoulder and just run. Um, mm. And so I remember the first thing that went through my head is I might get shot because this, this woman, is it worth it? Right. And, uh, and that was, that was kind of hard for me to deal with later on, mm. like in the months following mm. is like uh, the feeling that the thoughts that went through my head were like selfish. Right. 
for self-preservation of me and my wife because that's all I really cared about was getting my wife out of there. I didn't really care about anybody else. Um, yeah, but there's a difference between thoughts so and actions, her, right? Her arm around my shoulder. And... Yeah, and yeah, of course. And that's what a lot of, you know, went in talking with my wife about it and, and the counselor about it because uh, I did go for some more like counseling later on in life. Mm -hmm. uh, and because one of the things that was hardest for me to deal with was was the selfish shots that I had during those moments. Like, I got to get my wife out of here. I got to like, I, you know, we talk about this stuff later. But um, so I throw her, her arm on my shoulder, I position the girl so that my body is facing the hotel strip. Uh, and that her body is on the safe side. And then uh, we we make our our last dash, which was like another 500 meters to get out to Tropicana Avenue. And uh, we pass by like ambulances and fire trucks that have like sheets laid out with people that have been shot, like just laid out on there and they're treating them. And I remember the girl saw an ambulance and, and some EMS and she's like, get me to the ambulance, like for my leg. <laughs> and so like, I like take her over to the ambulance and the ambulance is like, what's, what's wrong? Where is she shot? I'm like, she's not shot. She's got a broken leg. And she's like, we're not taking broken legs. We're only taking gunshots. And so I'm like, yeah. fucking take take her and we just keep on pushing and she's like she's like crying because she wants to be in the ambulance and i'm like man we're we're, we're moving yeah. um and so i real like i can see the people shot and i'm like all right we're they got other things to deal with right and so we push out there and then um i put the girls behind this big big ass boulder and i go out to tropicana avenue and i i uh, i tell my grandparents i'm like when you're four like 400 meters away from this this advertisement sign uh throw on your high beams and I'll flash you with my flashlight. And so they throw on their high beams. I see their car. I turn on my flashlight and I wave them down. They come over. We throw the girls in the back of the car. I jump in and then we're out of there. Uh, and then, we, you know, we get back to my grandparents' house, which is like 15 minutes away from there. And we just, you know, throw some ice on the girl's leg, call their parents, get them over there to pick them up. Um, I go in the bathroom. I throw up. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, then me and, it, it was it was a crazy night from that point forward for the fact that we had just survived that me and my 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 girl or my wife knowing that we had just survived that but nobody else knowing under, and understanding yet what that was like because mm. uh, my grandparents didn't really understand they're like you know what happened like somebody was there a shooting or, or whatever um they didn't really understand so we we turned on the news and it was like you know it's everywhere on the news but at this point it's like 11 or 12 at night and um it was like two people shot is what it said like on the bottom two people shot at las vegas concert hmm. and we're like grandpa like it, it was worse than that like it i'm telling you it sounded like freaking war over there i'm like it can't be just two people shot and so we um my grandparents go to sleep me and my wife can't sleep um i, I can't sleep you know my my nerves the adrenaline all that stuff and so we like put on a movie like the princess bride just to try and like distract ourselves and she gets like 30 minutes of sleep um it's like five or six o'clock in the morning and we just can't sleep at all. So we just sit there. My grandparents wake up, they make coffee and whatnot. And they, we turn the news back on and then it's like 56 people killed, 400 wounded numbers still rising. And, and then at that point is when my grandparents saw it and they're just like, Oh, like sh shit, something just happened. And then pretty, pretty soon after, like, you know, the, the headlines are already saying like America's deadliest mass shooting. Um, and so, yeah. And then I just had to, I had to go, we had to go back to the hotel and pack our stuff uh, and then drive back to California. Time to go back to uh, work. Yeah. And, yeah. and honestly it was, I mean, the next day I went back cause my CO, my Sergeant major, my, 
my exo, they all wanted to see me and talk to me because everybody knew I was there, right? Yeah. So everybody's calling and checking up on me. Um, my, my parents, all my family, we have to get in contact with everybody because every, like our phones are just blown up. Yeah. And, I mean, I had left a, a voicemail on my, on my, I tried to call my parents when we were behind that thing, just to tell them, you know, um, I just called them to tell them, you know, I love you guys in case we don't make it out of this. Um, mm-hmm. I left them voicemails and I left a voicemail on my best friend uh, that I joined a Marine Corps with. I left the voicemail and just said, Hey, if you can get in touch with my parents, just, they just let them know I'm okay. And that I love them, whatever. Uh, and so drove back to Camp Pendleton and the next day I go in to talk with my CEO, my XO and tell them the whole story, just like I told you. Right. Um, and they're like, all right, you take as much time off, take leave, like don't even take leave, just take as much time off as you need. Like take two or three weeks off. We won't charge you for anything. And if you need more time, then we can talk about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll set you up with counselors. We'll, you know, anything you need, just let us know. We'll do it. Um, and so they were great. Um, and I, I looked at my XO. I'm like, ma'am, I check in a career course tomorrow. Like it's at staff MCO Academy. And she's like, don't worry about it. Like you, you will cancel it. Like we'll get you on another one. I'm like, ma'am, I'm going to career course tomorrow. <laughs> I, I already had orders to drill instructor school, uh, three months, like three months later. Like I had, I knew I was going to drill instructor school three months down the road. And, um, I knew like, if I go to drill instructor duty, I'm not going to have a chance to go to career school. I'll be less competitive for promotion. All these, like, I'm already thinking about all these other stuff. So I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going to career school. Uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, and like that, that kind of comes back to that personality where I can just like stuff things away and just deal with it. Like, I was just like, I'm just, I'm deal with it. Right. I don't, mm. I don't feel like I have PTSD. Right. Like I'm, I'm a little nerves, nerves are a little shot right now or whatever. Right. But I'm alive. Um, and so the next day I, I threw on my alphas and I went down to S you know, SOI and I checked into to the Academy and, you know, here, here in machine gun burst on the, on the, on the alpha shelf while I'm sitting in there in the Academy, you know, two days away from the craziest mass shooting in, in American history. Right. Um, and so that's how I dealt with it. I just went straight back into it. Um, I think that's good and, for people like us. Um, you know, that's, 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 you give us a bunch of time and, and that's probably more of a problem, uh, at least yeah. hindsight looking back, uh, at, at myself, I would have, I would have probably needed a career course to, to maintain sanity. Yeah, uh, I love cause, being busy, man. yeah sitting yeah. around doing yeah. nothing idle times, the devil's playground. Let me ask you this. How did your wife handle all of that? Yeah, that's, that's where, uh, my decision wasn't, you know, I was thinking about me. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife was like, okay, you know, she's like, I'm taking time off. Uh, cause she was a college, like a full-time college student at the time. Uh, and working like as a waitress just to make some extra money and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and so she's like, I'm staying home. Right. Obviously like they can serve tables without me. I'll take a couple of days off. Um, and I think it's like my second day at, at, um, at the Academy and I get a voicemail, like when I leave the, the classroom, and my like phone like just blows up because there's no signal inside the classroom. So it blows up when I walk outside, and I like look at the voicemail. Like I I open the first voicemail and it's like, hey, this is a you know Frank whatever uh, with the Oceanside Fire Department. We got your uh, you got your your girlfriend over here. Uh, she had a pretty bad panic attack. We got her you know oh, like no. sedated or taken care of right now. Blah blah. And I'm just like, oh my fuck, dude. And so. I have to like, you know, go, go back and figure this out and, and help her out. Basically, you know, she took it, she took it a lot harder than, than, than I did. Um, and most of the people did, right. Most of the people understandably did. It was, 
the most traumatic event almost anybody could ever live through. Hmm. Um, and to, I was the anomaly, right? I was not the, the, the regular person in all of this. I was the anomaly that was okay. And just went right back to work. Everybody else was, was reeling from this on. And so she, she had to fight through, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, I'd say for pretty heavily for the, the first year. And then, still a lot for the next couple of years uh she's a lot she's a lot better now um but the first two years after that were were rough and especially the first couple months obviously and you know mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of panic attacks um a lot of late nights crying a lot of nightmares waking up um i had nightmares for for probably two years following that event um but they didn't bother me um mm-hmm. I just knew I was going to go to sleep and I was going to dream about somebody walking into a restaurant and shooting at all of us or, or something of the sort. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never lost any sleep over it and it never, never bothered me, but eventually I was like, I should probably go and get this checked out. Um, but yeah, so she had a rough time with it. And, uh, so I had to be like her support for, for a long time and we had to get through that together. Yeah. Um, and obviously that, that, that makes you stronger in the end for it, but it, it was tough for, some time yeah i'm sure i'm sure it um i would i would guess that you being a marine and having training and leadership probably you know from the marine corps at least definitely helped you that night especially if you say you're the anomaly because i don't you know i don't know how many marines are in that crowd but if people are you know people are there's like four or five Marines out there. Uh, I think there's three active duty. I was one of them. Uh, and there's two other guys that were there together. Um, and I mean, each Marine has like a, a story about what they did that night. Um, the, mm-hmm. the two other Marines, they were like a corporal and a sergeant. I think they both got the Navy and Marine Corps medal, which is the highest non-combat valor award you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's right there between a bronze star and a silver star. Um, so they both got that for saving the lives of some women, throwing them in the back of a pickup truck and getting them, you know, tourniqueting at their legs and stuff like that. Um, another Marine who was just like a recent vet, like just got out. He was the one that actually got into a pickup truck that wasn't even his and ran it through the gate. Now that's the, some Marine shit right there. Like, that's what I was yeah. trying to get to. I knew that one yeah. of those guys was a Marine. I knew it. Yeah, that, that dude literally ran the pickup truck through the fence and opened up that gaping hole in the fence that everybody ran out onto the Las Vegas uh, airport. Yeah, he said, bet. And, you think we're caged in? Yeah. Give me them keys. Yeah, so, uh, and then and then I was the other active duty guy uh, that was there. Yeah, it's so amazing. and did something, uh, and they wrote me up for the same award, the, the Navy and Marine Corps Medal, uh, and it ended up, you know, long story, award process. It got bumped down to a Navy and Marine Corps Accommodation Medal for heroism because of uh, some semantics, essentially. I get semantics in the award system, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of wild. Um yeah, you know, my very first deployment, I don't talk about a bunch on the on here because it's just so much pales in comparison, right, to, to some of the other stuff that I did later on. But I guess maybe, maybe my second deployment, I did Cuba deployment with FAST, and then after that I did uh, a quick reaction force for Southeast Asia through FAST Company, through 3rd FAST. And we actually got activated when this Lebanon, Hamas, Beirut thing went 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 down the last time, you know, in oh six oh seven time frame, and we went over there, and you know, you said something a couple of times, and it sounds, you know, to the Marines listening, they're going to chuckle and think that it sounds corny, but I was on the other side of the world, dressed in plain clothes because they didn't want a American face on a crisis, mm-hmm. and when the people found out that it was the Marines that had them, that was a wrap. 
you watch the anxiety fall out of their face. Uh, now we're still in, in, in a conflict zone and things are still bad, but as soon as they knew that we were Marines or that Marines were around, it was like this reassurance that things were going to be okay. And, uh, that's good. That's the way it should be. Um, it, it's, it's powerful, right? And I, I talked to, cause, cause now I teach for the Academy, right? The Marine Corps, the staff NCO Academy, uh, the, the first class on the schedule for career school. So I teach, I teach staff sergeants, um, the, the very first class that they get when they check into the academy is the profession of arms, right? And one of the first things I open up with is like, let's talk about what what the profession of arms is, but let's let's really start talking about what it means to be a Marine and, and what that means like outside of just the Marine Corps as well. And so I, I, I take them through this like this progression of discussion where I'm like, hey, you know, what brought you into the Marine Corps? What kept you in the Marine Corps? What does the American populace think about the Marine Corps? Like, you know, Johnny and Sally that don't have any Marine affiliation at all mm-hmm. that are in Ohio. Like, and then I start talking to them about like, is that important that the the everyday American views the Marine Corps the way it does? Not not the congressmen, not the people that write the bills and pass all the stuff that that helps us, but the everyday American, right? And we start talking about that. It's, it's always like a fruitful discussion. And then I get into, I, I tell them the, the story that I just told you, right? But in a condensed like minute time frame. Um, I tell them the the parts after the shooting, basically where we helped the women and and how the first thing and my my wife she's she's born and raised in L.A. UCLA grad didn't know anything about the Marine Corps when we met right and I mean she still doesn't know a whole lot about the Marine Corps <laughs> uh, but she did she does did didn't know anything about the Marine Corps but the first thing that came to her mind when she interacted with all those civilians to calm them down was to say my boyfriend's a Marine. He's going to get us out of here. You mm-hmm. just have to listen to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and every single time that she said that to those women, you could see what it what it did for them, right? And so I told my students that because that is that's the power of of like the legacy that we uphold and all that stuff, right? All the all the corny stuff, right? Hmm. Um, but it's it's, it's extremely real. Yeah, old um, man, when you see it, you feel day, it. Like, if you're if you're picking us. Yeah, if you're picking a starting lineup for people that you want to take into that scenario, I was a six, you know, five and a half year, six year staff sergeant, no deployments at that time. I'm a cyber networking operator, so I'm not like a, a grunt, right? I'm not the guy that you're picking. Uh, but all those things, again, like all those things are semantics at that point in time. Like all they give a shit about is that you're a U.S. Marine and that means something to them. Um, and so they'll, they'll put their lives in your hands. Yeah, well, you had the grunt already running ops on the fence, so you guys were moving other pieces, right? (laughs) So, like, I'm sure that guy's an 03. I mean, 100%. He was hammered. Um, Yeah. Hold my beer and watch this. Hold my beer. Give me them keys, boys. I've always wanted to run through this gate. Follow me. (laughs) (laughs) Hell, yeah. Um, Trying to make light of a a not light situation, but, but yeah, the rest of America, when, when times are bad, Where's the Marines? That's what they say. Um, and if you're a Marine or ever been one, that that should throb your chest up and say, yeah, yeah, that is like that. That's my fraternity, um, my gun club. So cool. So take me on what happens after that. And I want to get to, you know, where we are now, too, when you when you yeah, get yeah. over here and, and flashpoint Taiwan. I want to get to that. So if we can yeah, we'll, we'll work that direction a little bit of this. Um, no, so, no, you don't got to do that. I'm, I'm just saying I'm, yeah, no. I want to stay on track with with my chrono yeah so we we get back uh to pendleton like i said and and again my wife has some panic attacks uh she's having a really hard time um just just getting through everyday life right and so she's like 
again, my, my wife, UCLA grad for her bachelor's degree, she's working on her master's at this point when, when we're together in Oceanside um, to become an occupational therapist. And so she's in graduate school. Uh, she's working morning shifts at a, at a, you know, like a nice, like cafe in Oceanside mm -hmm. or Carlsbad or whatever. Uh, and she's working e evening shifts, like the, like the seven, eight to 11 o'clock midnight closing shift, uh, over at Hooters. And so during those, that month following, like I'm like going down there to Hooters every night to do my, my coursework for the Academy. Uh, cause I'm writing essays and stuff and I'm like sitting in the parking lot at Hooters or sitting at a table at Hooters because she's just like having a hard time functioning, you know, mm. she just, she's afraid, um, and, and having a hard time with, with all this post-traumatic stress disorder and whatnot. And so, I mean, I'd just spend my time doing homework at Hooters just to support her and, and be there so that she could just get through her shifts. Yeah. And so we're like doing whatever we can to make it through. Right. And so again, I told her, I'm like, Hey, we, I got counseling for free we'll just say we're going in as a couple because it's this thing that we went through together. That'll be fine. And so we got the counseling, um, got in there. And like I said, it, the first couple of sessions is like working through the, the traumatic experience. And like by like session three, they're just like, all right, let's unpack what Chase has got going on over here. He doesn't <laughs> talk about his emotions at all. Yeah. So it, it quickly got to that where, where we're talking about why does Chase not can't say how he's feeling at all about anything um is it, so, it's not can't right it's just yeah. won't yeah it's it's won't it's 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 hard like i i just didn't want i don't want to open up about things i don't want to say that i'm having a hard time mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. with anything mm -hmm. um i just want to be a strong dude and just go through it and power through it and be the be the rock for everybody else um which is you know i'm sure a lot of people can can understand that um and so yeah it, it turned into one of those where we started talking about my feelings and said now now i'm in the uncomfortable hot seat and i'm just like oh, this is not what we came <laughs> uh, so so yeah we worked through that but that kind of goes back to what you're originally talking about like does this affect like like my family situation and yeah it does it's just that my personality the way it is it's, it's very hard for me to open about, up about things mm -hmm. um and the the thing that's always been hardest for me is like it's not just opening up about the the bad things. It was for for a lot of my life. It's been hard to open about good things too. Mm -hmm. Like I, when my wife does, like my wife's awesome. She does so much great stuff for us and our family. And, and for a lot of our relationship, it's been very hard for me to just be very like to be thankful in the sense of like actually saying thanks for things and mm -hmm. saying how much I love her and how much I appreciate her and all those things like. Those are things that are extremely hard for me to say and i don't I, you know i haven't even gotten to the root of, of why that is but mm -hmm. uh it's not just saying i i have a problem or i want to talk about something that's bothering me like it's the good things too so like i'm just a very close i've been a very closed off person emotionally uh for a lot of reasons uh, it's just kind of been my personality for a long time gotcha gotcha so when do you come into quantico is it the next duty station after that uh so after the shooting and all that stuff I go down to to the depot, San Diego, oh, right? That's to, right. Yeah, so I had, I had my reenlistment incentive when I reenlisted as a as a sergeant was to become a drill instructor and, and go down to San Diego. And so I put together this package. I do it all right. And at this point, I I had uh, I started getting heart palpitations when I was a corporal, um, where like my heart would like skip a beat or like kind of like stop for a second and pick up and it's you know pretty frightening uh but they're benign 
Uh, they don't do anything. The doctor's just like, Hey, you just got to live with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I started taking like medication that just like helps with them. Uh, it's not anything I, I never, I mean, still to this day, I've been in the Marine Corps for 12 years and I've never been on light duty. Right. I was running as the battalion guide on bear with a freaking heart monitor and leads all over my body because <laughs> I refused to be on light duty. So I had this freaking gadget and just wires hanging off me and I'm leading the battalion with the guide on and stuff. So, um, so I was full duty and, you know, went through an MAI course and all that stuff. So I put up my package and right there in the pack in the screen package says, if you have heart medication, like you're disqualified, uh, or heart oh, no shit. and so, yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, I talked to the crew planner. I'm like, dude, there ain't no way. Like I'm, I'm worldwide deployable. I just came back from the middle East for like a month and a half. Uh, I just finished MAI course. I'm, you know, highest first class PFT and CFT you can get. Um, and so I'm like, there's no way that I can't do this duty. And so I'm like, what if I go and talk to the doctor and get them to write like a waiver? And he's like, do it. You, all we can do is route it up. Right. And so I, I go to the doctor, I tell him, make my case. He's like, dude, you're the fittest guy I see in here. Like, um, and so he writes up this letter saying like, this guy can do it kind of thing. And so I put that in the package to be a drill instructor and he routes up to headquarters Marine Corps and it comes back and I get a class date for eight months down the road. Right. And so now we're looking at for, uh, December of 2017, I go to, research the package you have to research it like two months before going there mm -hmm, to make sure mm -hmm. everything's still good do that comes back approved from headquarters marine corps again excuse me and um i go to pick up the package like two days before checking in to, to san diego and i pick it up and i'm looking at the check-in screening checklist for for mcrd san diego and it's like hey bring any waivers bring all packages all that stuff and so i see the waiver thing and i'm like looking through my package like where the hell is this medical waiver i'm like that's the first thing they're gonna ask for and so I'm looking through there, I'm like, it's not in there. And so I called my career plan. I'm like, hey man, it says bring all waivers. Like I need that medical waiver that got routed up. And he's like, what medical waiver? I'm like, brother, like the, the heart, the heart thing. Like, and he's like, oh, I didn't route that with the package. I'm like, dude, you, you're shitting me. I'm like, they're gonna turn me away at the door. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, he's like, if you tell them about it, like they're gonna kick you out, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no shit. I'm like. I just, I, I'm, I basically just, I'm like, dude, fuck you. And I just mm. hang up the phone. I go to check in at DI school. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to lie to them, but I'm not going to bring it up. I'm mm. just going to give them my package and I'm just going to check in like a regular student. So I do that. I give them my package, all that stuff. Go through the first week of, of drone instructor school. And on like the first Friday, the first sergeant calls me off the parade deck into his office. And he's like, are you on heart, heart medication? I'm like, yes, first sergeant. He's like, why the fuck are you here? Why didn't you tell us? I'm like, it's in, it's in my package, right? I, I checked and I put the medication in there. It's all in my medical screening. And he's like, you are not supposed to be here if you're on any kind of heart medication. Uh, and he's like, we can't keep you here. And I was like, well, I want to be here. And so he's <laughs> like, all right. So he ends up talking to my drill instructor and instructor uh, who I ended up becoming friends with. And I, I we talked about the story all the time now, but, uh, he talks to him. He's like, Hey, how's McGordy, whatever house has not McGordy. He's like, he's good to go so far after this first week, at least. Mm. Uh, he's like, should we keep him? He's like, if we can keep him, let's keep him. Um, and so I'm like, yeah, we want to stay. And so like, all right, we'll put you through the whole medical screen process with our doctors here on San Diego. Mm -hmm. And if they say you can stay, you can stay. And so for the next five weeks, I'm going through drill instructor school while also bouncing to medical appointments to get them to check me out and stuff. And then on week six, I get a call from the the lead nurse on on San Diego, and they're like, "Hey, we can't keep you. It's it's a you're a liability." Um, and so I was like, "All right." And so I walk into the first sergeant's office, and he's like, "All right, man." He's like, "There's nothing we can do for you." And he's like, 
going on. Go yeah, sit but in our you weren't bike. having trouble. Like you didn't have issues, right? Yeah, it was just, just policy. It was just, it was just a legal thing. Okay, it's just straight up the the. I mean, the sentence is as clear as day. It says yeah. you can't do it, right? Uh, so if I were to drop dead, it would have been one hundred percent their fault, even if I said that I wanted to be there, right? There's no way around it. Yeah. Um, so they're like, you're disqualified from any SDAs. Um, go to go to the the little like lounge and drill instructor school. Call your monitor and get orders uh, somewhere else. And so I go and I sit there and I call my monitor and I'm calling her and emailing her two, three times a day, every day for two weeks. And she doesn't pick up. And so eventually the person's like, why are you still here? He calls, they don't answer him. Sergeant major calls. Like eventually the base sergeant major had to call down to, to manpower or whatever and get my monitor on the line. And so she calls because her boss obviously started, you know, crapping down her throat about why, why there is a staff sergeant sitting on MCRD for three weeks not getting a phone call back from her mm-hmm. uh, so she calls me up and she's all frazzled and she's like hey uh sister Sergeant McGordy, i heard i gotta give you orders i was like yes uh yes it is master um she's like where do you want to go uh i was like i just want to deploy or i want to go to the infantry and she's like all right she's like victor one four is deploying in eight months you got orders check in tomorrow Boom. and so yeah i go over to, to first battalion fourth marines camp porno california uh and i spend the next three and a half years at one four as a staff sergeant. Uh, I do two deployments with them, a 31st MU out to the Indo Um That was the first deployment. We come back two months later, we go down to the border to do, to do the Southwest border mission, supporting mm-hmm. border patrol. Uh, so we do that for a few months and then we start our work up for the 15th MU. Um, we end up doing the 15th MU where we get tasked to go out to Somalia and basically support operations where basically we were tasked to move all navy seals and all marine raiders out of somalia into kenya before the biden administration takes office Mm -hmm. and so we spend basically a month and a half providing close air support with our our fixed wing and our rotary wing um as well as you know isr support drone support Uh, we're just managing the c2 for all of that stuff and we send in uh bravo company and and charlie company from one four to go to Baladogle, Mogadishu, and Kismayo, the three bases that our special operators were operating out of at the time. We send them into those bases uh, to provide security so that they can actually tear down all of their security infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And they're flying uh, night missions with C-130s under the cover of darkness to Kenya every single night. And so we basically just do that for two months um, and then go into Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the whole Middle, o- Middle East Mew float, basically. Uh, and that was that was the Mew. Unfortunately, we're at the beginning of it. The amphibious assault vehicle sank off yeah. the coast of California, and we lost uh, the nine Marines and the one sailor uh, at the beginning of our deployment as well. Yeah, it's terrible. I, I remember watching it, uh, hearing about it, reading about it in the news. I remember even talking about it. I, I didn't talk about it on, you know. No, did we talk about? It? No, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, but I definitely remember researching it and having conversations with Matt and myself, not on camera, about that. It was more of a mm-hmm. flustered and venting conversation uh, about those damn yeah. things. But um, yeah, that's yeah, wild. One of the longest, longest nights of my life as well. Uh, probably second to the uh, the shooting. As mm. um, a as a long night for us. Yeah. Long couple of days. So. Was, yeah. But yeah, so do do those two deployments, uh, and then coming back from that second deployment. Uh, Working up for that deployment, I knew I was at the point in my career where my options to do anything unique or cool or different were running out mm-hmm. because I picked up so fast. Like I had almost pushed myself out of options because I picked up so quickly. Yeah, rank wise, yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, like almost like a like a blessing and a curse kind of thing, right? 
Um, so I knew like my t SDAs, I was disqualified from, right? Uh, and so what could I do to, to do something unique and something fun? I just want to do something different. Like, cause at this point I had now been with the wing, I'd been with the MLG, I'd been with the infantry. So I've done all three. Um, and I've been at the ground level support squadron battalions. So like I'm down there hooking and jabbing with the guys. I haven't been at headquarters or anything like that. So I feel like I'd accomplished everything I needed to as a, as a regular Marine. I wanted to do something unique and different. And so I started to think at that point, what could I do? And that's when the academies come back, came back into my mind. Cause I've been offered to, you know, they always offer like, Hey, if you want to come here, come here. And so when I was there as a career school student, as a young staff sergeant, you know, I'm a four ribbon five-year staff sergeant. I'm like, what am I going to come here and teach these guys? I don't have any experiences myself. Yeah. Um, and so, but coming off of that second deployment with, with one, four, I'm like, all right, I got some experience now. I, I feel rooted in myself as a staff NCO now I've led Marines. I've done things like at this point, I feel like I can give something to Marines if I go and teach. And I, I like teaching because that's why I went to college. Sure. Um, yeah. And so I'm like, I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, hey, we could do this and let's just go and go somewhere else. Like besides California, let's let's try and go to like Quantico. I've, I've heard, you know, cool things about how that's different. Uh, let's just try and go and live somewhere else and just do something unique. Mm -hmm. And so I start the package for that. We go on the the on the Mew on the deployment. That's during the coronavirus outbreak. So it's the worst Mew ever kind of thing, like stuck on the ship for nine months. Yeah. Um, and so I can't get an interview with them because of COVID. So like literally nobody's going to work. So I can't get an interview to the screen to be a faculty advisor yet until I get back from the Mew. And while I'm on the Mew, while I'm in Saudi Arabia, actually, I'm, I'm sitting there in Saudi Arabia and setting up this, this network and whatnot. And I get a, I get an email saying you, you've been histed. And I'm like, what? I'm like, <laughs> I'm disqualified from SDA as a thought. Yeah. Right? Um, and so. I get the email that I'm hissed and, and I'm like, mother, like, I already know what that means. That means I'm going to be a recruiter. Like you don't get, I mean, you get hissed. Yes. You could be a drone trigger or something, but like you're going to be a recruiter. They need more recruiters than they need anything else. Um, and so I'm like, all right, well, they just threw a wrench in my plans. I guess that's the unique thing I'm doing when I get back. Yeah, um, and yeah, so yeah. I'm like, I just kind of jumped both feet into it. I'm like, I'm going to be the best damn recruiter I can be though. So I started reading like books on recruiting and like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> marketing and selling and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm like, all right, I'm going to be the best recruiter I can at least and hopefully not kill myself out there. Um, and when I got back, I was the first person to come back from the, like from my entire unit, I got sent on advanced advanced party to uh -huh. be the first person back to set up the computers for the advanced party to come back three weeks later and then receive the rest of the the main body. And so I get back there, I'm by myself in Horno and I set up these computers pretty quickly. It's, it's easy job. Right. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go and screen for this faculty advisor thing. Anyways, I already have the completed package. I already have it signed up by my CEO, my sergeant major, mm -hmm. everybody. I'm like, the worst they could tell me is no, you've been hissed. Yep. Uh, and so I just go down to Camp Pendleton. They get the sergeant major, the academics officer, and all the staff NCICs of all the schools in the, in the room. I go in there and I teach a, a 10 minute class on, on any topic I wanted. I think I talked to them about like the TSP on and how to invest in the military mm -hmm. and then i taught a 10 minute class about why i should be a faculty advisor like why like basically selling myself and then i sat there for 40 or 50 minutes while they threw questions at me um about like you know how would you deal with this kind of situation how would you it's like straight mortar murder board style yeah yeah what's your teaching philosophy stuff like that um and so i went through the whole thing i stepped outside of the room when it was done the master guns came out a few minutes later he's like hey man he's like you're good he's like We'll endorse your package, but uh, it's on you to talk with the monitors to see if you can get released from the hist and get orders. And if you do, we'll endorse it. 
Mm-hmm. And so I call the monitor like right there. Uh, and it's the, the drill instructor monitor is the monitor for, Uh-oh. uh, for the academies as well. So he's on his team. So no better person to talk to really. Um, I call him up. He's a great dude. Uh, Gunner Sergeant Hun, a, a phenomenal guy. Um, sure. call him up and I'm like, I'm like, Hey, uh, this is, this is the deal. This is what I'm trying to do. Uh, and he's like, he's like, I don't, I don't make that call, man. He's like, I got to talk to other people. So he, he's like, I'll call you back in 30 minutes or, or so though. So he goes and he talks to other people and literally within 30 minutes, he, he calls me back and he's like, all right. He's like, some people are willing to release you. Uh, cause they, cause the academies were really bad for people too. So that's, that's really what, what helped. Um, and so he's like, all right, we'll release you. Um, call me tomorrow and I'll have your, I'll have like your little thing in my system and we'll give you orders. He's like, think about where you want to go. He's like, I'm telling you where I, I want to send you. He's like, I want to send you to Okinawa or Lejeune. Uh, but most likely Okinawa because that's who needs the most people. And so I call him back the next day. I'm like, hey, I want to go to Quantico. He's like, that's not the options I told you. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I know, but I, I want to go to Quantico. He's like, I need 10 people at Lejeune. I need like 10 people at, at Okinawa. He's like, I won't send you to Okinawa because you just did two back-to-back deployments. And I get that. He's like, so I won't do that. He's like, but I want I give I want to send you to Lejeune. I'm like, he's like, unless you can talk me into sending you to Quantico in two minutes, you're going to Lejeune. And so I was like, all right. I was like, this is why I want to go. And I just laid it out for him in two minutes. I'm like, I understand it's a different place. I understand it's a different part of the Marine Corps. It's not the big Marine Corps. It's it's close to the flagpole, you know, notionally, like headquarters Marine Corps is right there, Pentagon, all that stuff. Like, it's not the fleet Marine Corps. I get that. I want that experience. I'm like, I want to be surrounded by policymakers. I want to be in a different part of the Marine Corps and see that different aspect so that I can be more experienced for it and, and whatever else. So I, I gave him what I think Quantico is going to be because I've never been there. And he's like, damn, man. He's like, all right, that was a good pitch. He's like, I only got one spot in Quantico. I'll send you. And so I got orders that next day. And, and I was I was in Quantico four months later oh, yeah. um, to start my time here at the Academy. I've been here for, for two years now, just over two years. And uh, I'm on my last year last year here right now. It's been it's been the best experience I could ever, ever have asked for. It's been so much more than I ever thought it was going to be. I felt like I've truly thrived here. And I know it's like, it's super cliche to say like, oh, I go to work every day and I feel like I'm not at work Mm -hmm. uh, kind of thing. But like, that's exactly what it is for me. Like I look forward to going to work every single day. Um, I I love when the weekend, you know, not that I don't love my weekends, but I love when the weekend's over uh, and I get to go back to work. I I cannot wait to be in front of students teaching and talking with them. and I've found a lot of passions that I've had that I have and the things that I'm most passionate about. I've, I've discovered a lot of that while being here. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it just happens to be the things that I've found that I'm most passionate about and that I really, really enjoy and love doing just happen to correlate to what I'm doing here at the Academy. And therefore it really has allowed me to excel. And so like when a lot of people were like asking me like, um, you know, like how the hell do you do all this stuff and how do you have all the energy to do all this stuff? Cause I, I, I do a lot of things around the Academy and, and in education for the military. Hmm. And it's like, well, when you go home, you want to play video games. You want to go hunting. You want to do whatever your hobby is that makes you fulfilled. This is the stuff that makes me fulfilled. So when I go home, I'm going home and I'm developing new classes. I'm writing new curriculum. I'm, I'm making the Quantico Warfighting Society. I'm, I'm doing Flashpoint Taiwan. Like I'm writing articles or books or whatever, like. I'm doing these things because these things are the things that are really making me like feel passionate, feel fulfilled. And they just happen to 
also make me a better faculty advisor and make me a better better educator and make me a better marine mm-hmm. so just like it's it's not purposeful it's just it, it ends up working out like that and it's great for me and it's great for the organization absolutely absolutely and you mentioned um you mentioned flashpoint taiwan uh i have like um i have serious questions and i know we're only three you know three parts through it but um for people that are watching this now can you just explain uh flashpoint taiwan a brief synopsis of it of what you're doing um now and in the in the six-part series leading to december yeah yeah so i'll give you the the elevator pitch right um so flashpoint taiwan is something that was thought up by lethal mind journal so the lethal mind journal uh active duty and veteran uh journal so you can write poems you can send in photography you can write articles great great publication for active duty for veterans by veterans by active duty uh of course civilians can contribute too but you know that's that's the crowd um awesome people that that started that up a couple years ago uh they basically you know we all follow each other on social media right there's this uh not a click but there's a group of marines that are out there doing great things on social media that has sprung up in the last couple of years and i've just happened to watch the rise of that community and i i just happened to get into it mm-hmm. as, as well eventually mm-hmm. uh, when i created the quantum warfighting society and so like a lot of us you know we all communicate in, in the dms and we all kind of know each other just through our instagram pages and so um we all share each other's stuff and stuff and i've written for lethal minds in the past i've written some articles for them and so um they reached out to me and they're like, Hey, we want to do something big. Like we want to do something like in person for, for Marines, for civilians, for, for people that are into this stuff. Um, and we want to do it in the DC area. And we know that you, what you've been doing at the Quantico Warfighting site has gotten like a lot of, it's gotten a lot of headway out there and, and people know like what you're doing out there. Uh, we want to bring you in on it. I'm like, all right. Um, and so we, we talked about what it was going to be. And so basically they already had Sino talk, which was the, the Intel analyst um who is a specialist on on china and and that domain he's a previous marine corps analyst as well mm. um their their thought process was we're going to do a an article series that's going to lead into a an actual like war game and crisis simulation in the dc area and so the way that we've actually flushed it out we did about two months of planning before we even rolled anything out which was um it's going to be a six-part article series and we're about halfway through it right now so an, an article will release on a Friday. The following week, I'll do a Zoom class myself and SinoTalk, the the author of the articles. We hop on Zoom for anybody and everybody that wants to hop in there, and we talk about the article. So, like the first week was an overview of China and Taiwan and their tensions, right? And so the next week, we did a Zoom call where I talked about basically everything from the inception of the Chinese Communist Party through the Chinese Civil War all the way up to contemporary times and issues. Um, the next week we did rather and terrain this week, we're doing, um, force disposition next week. we got logistics. We got C2. So basically over the course of these, these weeks, we're doing article class, article class, article class, and it leads up to December. And in December, we have locked on a venue at George Washington university where we will be hosting an actual war game and crisis simulation over the course of three days. Uh, so it'll start Friday night. It'll go Saturday. It'll go Sunday. And during that time frame, we're looking at hosting about 130 people, and it's going to be civilians, military, college students, anybody and everybody that's interested and, and has some, you know, wants to have some skin in the game kind of thing. Um, and we'll also have panelists that are going to be there doing like two hour long panels of questions and answers with the people that are there. 
Um, so we'll have spectators there as well as people that are actually participating in the crisis simulation. I ended up bringing in a couple of people that, that I know through the Marine Corps University um, that are war gamers. So I know a couple of great war gamers uh, that host the command and staff and the SAW and the EWS war games for mm -hmm. like the high level officer schools. Mm -hmm. So I got them involved and they're running our war game simulation. So it's going to be like top is top notch war game simulation as it can be. Um, and so it's going to be great. Uh, we partnered with George Washington University, uh, a lot of other entities that are coming in and helping out. And so we're basically just putting together this big thing uh, for free to get people, you know, in on the topics that are of concern today, right? And get get military minds thinking as well as the civilian populace that is going to be dealing with that because a lot of these schools, George Washington University, Georgetown University, mm -hmm. all these students and everybody that's participating, these are all the, the future leaders of the government and the agencies that run the DOD and all that's that right. stuff. So yeah. we're getting everybody together for it. So it's it's a big undertaking, uh, but it's a lot of the right people are, are banding together to, to do it. And I'm just happy to be a part of it. No, I love it, man. I'm, you know, I'm following as much as, uh, probably not as much as I should be, but as much as I'm able <laughs> Uh, I'm following along, but but I love what you're doing. Um, been a while. Covered Flashpoint Taiwan. Uh, I think there should be more conversation in the future, maybe after this goes down and kind of, uh, at least between me and you, we don't have to run it on here if not necessary, but I want to talk more about that after everything wraps. And um, is there anything and, that and I... Just really quick for yeah, yeah. for anybody that, uh, um, that wants to get in on it. Um, basically, if you follow along on Lethal Minds Journal on Instagram... Uh, or my my account, Quantico Warfighting Society on Instagram. We're pushing out the updates on it all the time. Uh, but if you don't have social media, that's fine. If you just go to Lethal Minds Journal, uh, you know, Google it. You can go to the Lethal Minds Journal Substack, and the articles are on there as well as the recordings of the zooms. So we Perfect. I'm doing the recordings of the zooms, and so you can go in there and watch the, you know, the 45 minutes of class plus 45 minutes of discussion back and forth between myself and the other participants where we're just talking through the topic and, and really just answering questions. So it's all in there. If anybody wants to go back and just kind of like throw it on and just, just educate themselves a little bit more too. Outstanding, man. I love it. Um, thank you for coming on. Thank you for, for, for coming on, being transparent, uh, even being vulnerable in places about, uh, about the story, which I think is necessary. I want to bring the truth. And sometimes the truth isn't always, you know, happy. Uh, does you have things like the crises that you were part of, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be different things with that. But, um, but I appreciate you being real about it. Um, and I appreciate your service, man. I think what you're doing up in Quantico, uh, regardless of everything else, it's awesome. And I think it's just going to be the beginning of something. You guys have got, uh, gotten into, to an area where, where I think we need to be, or we need to have people, we need to have our sharp minds there. And we can't remove our scholars from our warriors. Uh, we'll have our, uh, what does it say? We'll have our, our wars fought by fools and our, I don't really remember exactly what the quote is, but it's something like that. Yeah. Um, I know where you're going with it. I don't know the direct quote either, though. Yeah, yeah, I'd have to look it up, and I don't have it written down, but we got to have our, our, our thinkers and our, our bright minds uh, in the center of all of that talking. So I appreciate that. Matt, you got anything? Nothing from Matt. Got anything for me? No, no. I mean, I appreciate you coming on or let me come on and what you're pushing out as well. I think that the uh, the surge of of the new online like military community is great, right? Because mm -hmm. um, five, six, seven, eight years ago, the online military community was like 
just the tip of the spear and poke boot fucks and and whatever like the worst like meme mm -hmm. pages possible mm -hmm. right and it degrading to the degrading to the organization Agreed. uh and now there's this trend forward where it's like marines are understanding like it's it's cool to be educated about your profession because yeah. your profession is extremely serious, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's it's cool to be educated in it. It's cool to spend time outside of the working hours because if you're just dependent on the working hours, you're not going to be good enough, right? Fact. You can always be better. Uh, and so, like people putting together podcasts, people putting together like the social media stuff. Like, um, I just love the trend, uh, and that's what got me into it. Just understanding and seeing the upward trajectory, I was like, man, this is cool. I want to be part of it somehow. Uh, and so I'm just, I'm grateful that everybody's doing their own part, whatever that part is, and it's feeding towards better military community and, and better war fighters. Absolutely. Better community, better war fighters. All right, guys, this choice is not chances. Chase, McGortney, Hunter, I appreciate you being on. You guys need to start following Quantico, War Fighting Society, uh, See No Talk. Uh, there's a bunch of them. If you get on my Instagram right now or on the uh, company's Instagram right now, you can see most of them. Uh, I follow almost all of them. So get on there, follow these guys, especially if you're an active duty guy. Uh, and I don't care what your job is. This is going to be a net positive to you as a, as an active duty Marine. Uh, and that would go for sailors and army as well. You're going to learn things here from, from some of the sharpest minds that the Marines have to offer. Uh, and, and, and I would say the, you know, nation, like you said, at Georgetown and, and, and George Washington, there's bright minds everywhere. So, um, I appreciate it. Thanks guys. Choices, not chances till next time. Thank you. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances podcast. Thanks, and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Yeah.